my name is Dennis Palmer and welcome to this special FA Cup semi-final roundup edition of the WFI EPO weekly podcast. I'm on with Greg Lee, a freelance football writer writing for The National. How are you, Greg? Very well, thank you, Ellis. Yeah, good weekend of FA Cup action and looking forward to getting into it. Yeah, you went to both games, didn't you? Yeah, I did, yeah. So back at Wembley on back-to-back days, which was a little bit weird, but yeah, good fun. Which did you prefer of the two games? Um, I think the the Chelsea-Tottenham game was probably the one which had a bit more kind of action to it. Six goals, obviously, but both really good games to watch and, and quite close as well. I know the scoreline was a bit more kind of decisive in Chelsea's favour, but I thought both matches were really tight, which was made them good to watch. Okie dokie, that is where we're going to start. So, Greg, tell me a little bit about the Chelsea-Tottenham game. Obviously, it's a six-goal thriller in the end. Chelsea ran out four two winners and a for now to the FA Cup final. But tell me a little bit about the game. How did it go? Um it, it was a tight game, as I say. Chelsea probably started the better of the teams. They were playing more on the counter attack and they won that free kick with the quick break forward, which uh Willian converted really well to give them the lead. And I think Chelsea just had the better of the moments in the game. A lot of their goals came from kind of, as I say, that free kick, two really good long range strikes in the second half and then a penalty as well in the first half and those moments seem to go in their favour but in terms of the flow of the game I probably thought Tottenham had the better of it the second half especially they were really dominant and Tottenham were really good at kind of pinning teams back in their own half of the field and essentially playing the game in the opponent's half of the field for pretty much kind of for pretty long periods we've seen that at White Hart Lane a lot and they were able to transfer that to Wembley at the weekend so they probably dominated, as I say, the control and the flow of the game, but the moments, the decisive moments went in Chelsea's favour and it could have gone either way this one. Tottenham on another day could easily have had the moments in their favour. If you think maybe that free kick doesn't go in, the penalty doesn't get given, that type of moments that can swing the game. Tottenham did do enough on another day to have perhaps won it, but in the end, Chelsea were the ones who got over the line and through to the final. Tottenham, to be fair to them, they were quite resilient in that game. They weren't, they? They came from behind twice after Runan scored on five minutes. Uh, Harry Kane scored on 18 minutes. And Runan scored from a penalty on 43 minutes. Day Ali scored uh, the equaliser for Tottenham. That stunning, stunning goal. We'll talk about that in a minute. On 52 minutes, Eden Hazard then came on, having been benched for the start of the game. He came on on 75 minutes. And then Nemanja Matic scored a wonderful Wonderful strike on 80 minutes. Let's go into Antonio Conte's team selection for that game at weekend. It's a little bit controversial, wasn't it? He left um, Eden Hazard and Diego Costa out of his starting lineup. They started on the bench and brought in Wunan and Batshuayi. Was that a good move in your opinion, Greg? Um, obviously, the results suggest that it was because they managed to rest two of their key players for a large chunk of that game. They've obviously playing on Tuesday against Southampton in the Premier League. And I think Conte was probably a little bit nervous at the fact that Tottenham have really closed the gap in the last few weeks at the top. And he probably knew that a player like Hazard, who's so important to his side, if he can be a little bit more fresh for that decisive game on Tuesday, then Chelsea, if they get the three points there, they'll be confident of holding off Tottenham in the league. So I think that was the reason for it. And it did pay off in terms of the result, definitely. As I said before, I think this could have gone either way and we could easily be talking about about a costly mistake from, from Conte if a couple of things had gone differently in the match. But you can't argue with the outcome and the fact that it was an ideal for him because he, he was able to achieve the best of both worlds in terms of resting those two players 
that Hazard was the more significant one because Costa hasn't been in great form lately. So there was an, even an argument that perhaps Batshuayi would have would have been the better choice anyway, regardless of whether they had this game coming up on Tuesday. But yeah, it, it did pay off in the end for Conte. But it's one of those that when you heard the news before the game, you start looking at Tottenham and thinking that although they had to, they made a couple of changes themselves. Uh, Son Heung-min at wing-back, probably the, the most standout one. You looked at the team sheets before and you thought that gave Tottenham an even bigger chance to, to win this game. But Conte has had an amazing first season in English football. It seems like everything he's done has gone, has gone right for him. And that was the case again this weekend. Willian Atten was pretty impressive, wasn't he? Getting those two goals in the first half. Yeah, and he was there. Player of the Year last year had to be a bit more patient for opportunities this time around because Pedro has tended to be the one who's been favoured on the right ahead of uh, ahead of Willian with Eden Hazard on the other flank. But obviously Hazard being rested, Willian took full advantage of that and and he did play well. He was decisive with the two goals from the free kick and from the penalty spot. But I think overall this this was a game where, as I said, those changes could have could have backfired on Conte. They didn't. I think the game was was tight enough that we should probably avoid drawing huge conclusions from it in terms of going forward. I've obviously seen, as I'm sure you have as well, there's been a lot of stories, people kind of arguing that this shows that Tottenham still lack the, the mental resilience, the kind of experience to win things. I'm not sure that's true because I think this game was, was tight enough to have gone either way. And a couple of events, as I say, if they if they had gone differently, it would have changed the outcome. I think both teams played well. It was tight game in terms of the goals. Really, maybe didn't reflect how few chance, how difficult it was to create clear cut chances. Neither team really created kind of any golden opportunities. It was all great finishing, really, which resulted in most of those goals. So I think the one outcome and the one kind of thing I would take away from this game personally is that I don't think it changes anything dramatically in terms of the direction these two teams are going it could easily have gone a different way it could easily have gone to extra time maybe even penalties and we wouldn't have known what the outcome would be there but I think both teams played well they both showed great qualities and the fact that Tottenham lost I don't think it really changes the fact that they're moving in the right direction under Maurizio Pochettino and I'd, I'd be a bit wary of drawing massive conclusions about kind of as I say Spurs as resilient or mental aptitude for this type of game because I think they did play well particularly in the second half and could easily have won it on another day let's talk about the two stunning stunning goals in that game since we're talking about Chelsea we'll start off with Nemanja Matic's winning goal what a pile driver what a beautiful beautiful goal eh? yeah he's got this in his locker a little bit Matic he's not a player who pops up on the score sheet too often but I think there was one against Everton last season towards the first half of the season under Mourinho where he scored one of probably one of the goals of the season, which probably gets forgotten because of obviously what happened to Chelsea subsequently. It was not a year to remember for them, really. But he does have that in his locker. He's got a sweet left foot. And it was a stunning strike, as you say, just arrowed right into the, the top corner off the woodwork. No chance for Lloris at all. And I think that moment of quality, it's just what was lacking for Tottenham a little bit. It, it could, that kind of something from nowhere, those moments just favoured Chelsea and and what a strike it was to win it and, and seal the victory. But brilliant. You can't really can't really expect anything more from Tottenham's defence in that situation because I think it was one of those goals where you just have to hold your hands up and say there's not much you can do about that. And second up, really, it could have been either of the two Tottenham goals. They were both really, really nice passes, weren't they, from Christian Eriksen. The first one for Harry Kane. Harry Kane just gets in front of the ball and just nicks it into the goal. A little glancing header beyond Thibaut Courtois. The second goal... Cross into the line of Deriari, Deriari shoots and scores. 
great goals. Let's talk a little bit about Christian Eriksen. I mean, 11 goals and 16 assists in all competitions so far this season. Is he becoming the most unheralded creative player in the Premier League? Yeah, I think there's definitely an argument for that. It's strange in a way that he doesn't get the attention that often his performances probably deserve because he is a creative player. He's normally the type of player that that gets noticed a lot and gets talked about. But there's always a feeling that he seems to go under the radar a little bit. I think that's partly down to maybe his personality. He seems quite shy and retiring. You don't often hear loads of stories about him off the pitch or anything like that. But it's also to do with his style. I think he just kind of gets on with the job. He's very efficient at creating chances. He's very kind of intelligent. His movement's good. He finds space well. But I think really now this season has been the season where he seems to have taken it to another level again. And those assist figures you quote there are, are evidence of that. And the one for Deli Ali particularly was, was brilliant because it was a very good finish from Ali as well. Not easy with the ball bouncing up like that, but it was all about the ball from Ericsson. And to have a player in your team for, for any team in the Premier League or in the world, in fact, who can do that is, is very important. And I think Ericsson, I'm glad that the last few weeks he seems to have been kind of his performances and contributions seem to have been recognised a bit more widely. Because I think if you look at, say, the, the player of the year shortlist, things like that, there was not much talk of him being on there. But but you could definitely make an argument that he's been he's been among the top players in the Premier League this season. And I think for Tottenham, a lot of the talk is about Harry Kane, Deli Alley, those young players who are thriving and they need to keep hold of. But Ericsson, who's slightly older than those two and theoretically approaching his prime a bit quicker than them I think they really do need to do all they can to keep hold of him as well because he's the type of player who can contribute to Maurizio Pochettino's kind of pressing game off the ball he's dynamic enough to do that he's got the work rate and the energy but he's also so creative and and offers that moment on the ball sometimes that Tottenham it can get quite frenzied that works to their advantage sometimes but they also need a player who can just put his foot on the ball have a moment of pause and deliver moments of quality as we saw at the weekend so I think he is a, a player they need to keep hold of just as much as any of the other players they've got who have performed well at White Hart Lane this year So Chelsea winning that game and now through to the FA Cup final that is going to be a big momentum boost for them they could still win the double couldn't they? Yeah momentum boost is probably a good way of putting it because this match although it was obviously for the FA Cup it felt almost like it could play a part in the title race as well Tottenham would come out on top the momentum would be all with them after their victories in previous weeks as well in the top flight so for Chelsea just to kind of put that to bed a little bit kind of stop their rise to some extent they've obviously still got work to do to win the title but they're odds on favourites at the moment they're really really in a strong position with that four point lead and the fact they're running is much kinder than Tottenham's and then through to the FA Cup final as well which is a great achievement they've not They've not won it yet, of course, but to even be in with a chance of, of winning a double in your first season in, in the Premier League for Antonio Conte is brilliant and testament to the work he's done, particularly because if we think back to last summer, it was more Jose Mourinho and Pep Guardiola people were talking about as the managers who would perhaps be in line to, to do something like this. So Conte's really stolen the thunder this season and if he was to win the FA Cup and the Premier League title this year, then that would have to go down as one of the best achievements we've seen in the last couple of decades, maybe in the Premier League, to come in in your first season and do that with such high level of competition as there is this year would be a remarkable achievement and one that Conte would probably deserve given the work he's done. And Tottenham, will this game have an impact 
on Mauricio Pochettino's men going forwards, in your view? Will they be able to bounce back easily? I think that's a it's a big test for them because if we remember last season, similar big game against Chelsea, the result didn't go in their favour that day they drew, which allowed Leicester to win the title. And from there, their last, their last couple of matches of that campaign, they almost collapsed. They lost to Southampton and Newcastle really heavily. They couldn't kind of bounce back and, and turn things around again. So they still have something to fight for. The title is not done and dusted yet, despite the fact that I do think Chelsea will go on to win it. So it is key that they go to Celeste Park on Wednesday to take on Palace and, and try and turn this around and get that result out of their system. Because if they're a team who want to be challenging for major trophies season after season... You do get setbacks. There's no team who wins everything. So it's all about how you respond to that. And I think that is that is a key step for them to see whether they have kind of progressed a little bit from last and kind of when that prize was no longer achievable for them, they kind of collapsed a little bit. And Pochettino will be desperate to avoid that because even if they can't win the title, it's really important, I think, for Tottenham that they've finished the season on a high. And if they were to finish second, even a close second to Chelsea, you'd have to say it's a good season. Whereas if they were to fall away again now, you would kind of doubt whether they whether they have what it takes next season to go on and win the Premier League title and competitions like the FA Cup as well. So definitely a key game for them at, at Sellers Park this week and the final few games of the season, they'll want to get this out of their system and, and kind of finish on a high after what's been a, a good season overall. It was a very, very sad week for Tottenham going into that game, wasn't it? Because um, their under-23 coach, Ugo Egeo, the former Aston Villa, Middlesbrough, West Brom, Leeds and Sheffield United player collapsed and died after a cardiac rest. I mean, have you got any memories of Ugo Edio? Um He's not a player who I, who I would have seen loads, to be honest. Um, I obviously remember the name and I would have seen him a little bit, but he's. I think he, he retired in 2009. That was with Sheffield United, I think was his last club. But in terms of his Premier League career, um, I think that ended kind of 2007, something like that, um, with Middlesbrough. And at Villa as well, he was his prime was probably at Villa in the 90s was was when he's most remembered, and I probably was a little bit too young to appreciate his performances for Villa at that time. But obviously, it kind of goes beyond the football element, and whether he was a good player or not is irrelevant to the fact that it's obviously very sad news and very difficult for Tottenham and and people that knew him before that game. And I think both managers made good points by reflecting on the fact that despite all the hype that, that football and matches like FA Cup semi-finals, the attention they get is obviously huge, but both managers made the point that events, as we saw, the sad events of Udo Ehiog show that in reality it's, it's not that important at all compared to in the, in the relative grand scheme of things. So I'm glad there was, there was a good kind of tribute before the match and both sets of supporters joined in the minute's applause and it kind of went on for longer than a minute really and Tottenham... Tottenham supporters, obviously, and, and everyone who works at the club, the, the staff and lots of the young players have come out with their kind of tributes as well to Udo Ehiog, who we've obviously lost far too soon. Indeed, our thoughts go out to Udo's family, the Tottenham under-23 Percy coach and the broader footballing community at this difficult time. We're going to go for a break, and after the break, we will be talking about Arsenal against I just thought I'd take a quick break here to tell you all about the other podcasts that World Football Index has available. That's Football Grad on Russian football, Gagan Pressing on the Bundesliga, the Champions League podcast, the Sound of the Liga on Guess What? La Liga, and the Serie A sit-down focusing on the Italian game. 
WFI is also global. We've got great coverage in the Americas too. The South American Football Podcast and Don't Call It Soccer on the MLS and the Liga MX are great listens. The Copa Libertadores Podcast is also well worth checking out. If you want for nostalgia, we've got a monthly World Cup series taking you up to Russia 2018 and the 11 Pieces of Me podcast where football fans and journalists construct their favourite all-time 11. Last but not least, the tactics part with Stevie Green is our most popular part of the week. Discover the variety of high-quality analysis we've got at World Football Index by checking out our feeds on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your podcast of choice today. Welcome back to this WFI EPL Weekly FA Cup semi-final special. I'm Ellis Palmer, and here with me is freelance football writer Greg Lee, who went to both of the FA Cup semi-final games at the weekend. We've spoken earlier on about Chelsea Tottenham. We're now going to speak about Arsenal against Manchester City on Sunday. As you podcast listeners and you obviously know Greg, I'm a Manchester City fan and I was really disappointed by that game. Obviously City lost 2-1 to Arsenal after extra time. Tell me a little bit about the story of Man City's defeat. It was a defeat that probably didn't look like coming for, for much of the game, particularly in the first half. City were dominant. They did. We spoke about Tottenham earlier and their ability to kind of dictate the game and, and play games in the opponent's half of the field. And we saw that with City. They were just winning the ball back so quickly after they lost it. Arsenal couldn't really get out. They had a couple of chances from kind of set pieces and a couple of moments on the counter-attack. But most of the running was, was done by City. It was probably the biggest chance actually didn't result in a shot. It was one of those where, where Aguero was, was stopped by Lauren Koscielny, a good tackle. But David Silva played him through on goal and that was a big chance. There were, there were moments like that for City throughout the half. And then the second half, Arsenal really did come out stronger and, and they deserve great credit for that because they kind of turned that match around and it was almost the opposite of the first half in the sense that City were now the team looking for counter-attacks. We saw that goal from Aguero that put them ahead on the break and you kind of think at that point they probably should have done more to control the game. Guardiola spoke, it, it kind of... We visited this in the build-up to this game as well, but three weeks ago, whenever it was at the Emirates, where City drew 2-2, they went ahead in that game, but they just couldn't control it. They couldn't kind of take the sting out of the game and manage it effectively for the remainder of it. And we saw that again at Wembley, and that is something you don't associate with Guardiola teams at Barcelona and Bayern Munich. They were always so good at, at controlling matches. Opponents would be the ones doing the chasing, and even after they went ahead, they kind of were able to shut games down with their effective possession and, and the fact that they can win the ball back so quickly. But I think that's the one thing he'll need to improve at City in terms of both personnel and, and, and more coaching is needed. He's only there, been there, obviously, this season. So as time goes on, you'd expect City to get much better at that. I think that element of that loss of control and the fact the game descended into a bit more kind of chaos than, than Guardiola would have liked, I think that undid City once again and they allowed Arsenal to root back into the game and... If you look at the chances created, you'd probably argue that Arsenal, in the end, probably maybe deserved this, even though at one point throughout the first half particularly, it looked like City were going were gonna to win this one quite comfortably. Indeed. We had a little bit of fun on the WFI EPL Weekly Twitter account. Yes, they can follow us at WFI EPL Weekly. 
we did a couple of polls. The first poll was, should the Aguero goal have been given at the tail end of the first half? Obviously, the ball was a judge to have crossed the line and gone out for a goal kick. However, television replays afterwards showed that the goal probably should have been given. Our poll on Twitter, from 113 votes, 65% of people said the ball was not out of play and the goal should have been given. Whilst 35% of people said the ball was out of play and should have been given. And then from my perspective, I thought, oh, it'd be offside or the ball would go out of play or something when I was watching it here. And I sort of thought, okay, maybe maybe the official was right to it. But then every time I saw the replay, I just thought the ball crossed the line, the ball crossed the line. I mean, what did you think? What was your take in the stadium on that? Well, I often think it's telling when you see these these things to kind of think what your first thought was, because that's what the officials have to do. It's a very hard job to judge these things, particularly with the speed of the game now. And it's very easy, I think, for, for fans and pundits and, and journalists to watch multiple replays and then criticise decisions that, that the officials make. So I have to say on the first viewing, when I saw it, I thought the ball was, was clearly out. I think it was something to do with the, the shape of the cross. It, it really did bend back in which with a left footer on that side of the pitch, as it was with Leroy Sané, you just kind of assume that it's probably gone out. And I think the replays that, that were shown from above the camera, above the, the line and the ball made it seem a lot tighter than it, than it did seem when I, first, when I first saw it. So I do have sympathy with the linesman who's obviously got to be looking at, at potential offsides in the box as well as that. He's got to be looking for any, any potential fouls. There's, there's a lot he has to do in the... The officials have to do and they look out for to make sure they make the right decision on this one. I, I think I only saw one replay of it, so I should probably look it up again because at the stadium, obviously, it's hard to, to watch multiple replays of these events while the match is going on. But I think having seen the replay that I did see, it did look a lot tighter and perhaps the ball did stay in, not the whole of the ball anyway, maybe didn't go out. But as I say, the first time I saw it, I thought it was definitely out. So I have sympathy with, with the official in that in that situation. I saw about four or five replays of it. And first, the first replay I saw from maybe more, but the more replays I saw, it was definitely still in the play and the goal should have been given. But doesn't this really strengthen the case for video assistant referees? Yeah, I think broadly I am in favour of, of additional help for the referees. As I said, I think they do a very hard job and any support that can be given to them is, is a benefit. But... I think there will be teething problems with this and I, I think it is a bit, I'm a bit reluctant to, to say it's going to solve everything, um, every run decision we see because there are a lot of kind of ifs and buts over it and I think there will be incidents we see where it, it, it's used and it maybe does disrupt the flow of the game or even if the right decision is reached, there's a question of, of when do you stop the match to, to review that? Should it be kind of a challenge system from the managers? Um, I think there's still a lot of issues to iron out. So although obviously the the video replay would have would have perhaps been a bit more conclusive than than the one view that the linesman got of course the fact that as you mentioned the poll that that was run it wasn't 100% unanimous even then after the replay so it just goes to show it is difficult even with this assistant assistance from from the technology that we've got now and I can't actually fully remember what happened after the the cross it was it was oh it was turned in wasn't it the ball was actually turned in for um for a goal I'm just trying, trying to imagine, say, if, if play was allowed to continue, the goal was given, um, and if Arsenal, say, asked to review that situation, if they said the ball was out, we want to review that, the goal would 
the goal would be given perhaps because of the review would show that the ball wasn't out but maybe Arsenal would then argue that oh well we we weren't ready to defend it because we thought it had gone out and things like this so I do think there will be some teething issues with it not so much the technology I think that it's clear that it will help but more how it's used and how we interpret it and, and when we decide to review these situations which ones we choose to review because I think at the moment it's the kind of idea is to use it for major decisions such as such as bid offside calls as we saw in that Spain versus France friendly recently, things like that. Ball crossing the line, I'm not sure is that is that is that a thing it's going to be used for. I don't actually know. It's something I should, probably should look up. But yeah, I don't think the fact that we would allow the technology to help us, I don't think it will solve every problem. And there probably will be decisions such as did the ball cross the line. And not just for goal kicks or corners, but for throw-ins. If a throw-in is is wrongly awarded and that leads to a goal, as far as I know, we can't review that. That will just continue as it currently is. So I don't think we'll get to a situation where everything is 100% perfect. But yeah, generally, obviously, I think video technology is, is long overdue in football and looking forward to seeing if hopefully we can get closer to 100% accuracy, even if, unfortunately, we're never going to reach that absolute target. My understanding of a VAR is that it will be used in anything the referee deems it will be helpful for. It will be some guy also trained as a referee, also on the select list of Premier League referees or whatever league referees it is, who is able to review the decision just with a TV screen there and will, through the referee's earpiece, tell him if the goal was a goal or if the decision was correct or not. But I think, I think it'll be interesting. I think it'll be, there'll be teething problems of it, obviously, but it'll be good to see it when it finally does get introduced. Now, on to the goals. Sergio Aguero's stunning counter-attack on 62 minutes was a sensational counter-attack for Manchester City. What did you think? I thought the pendulum had swung in City's favour there, Greg. Yeah, I think, as I said, they were under the cross a little bit at the start of the second half. But that goal, you think from there, they're in a great position of strength. You think Arsenal might be a bit deflated by that. And in City, you would expect a team of their quality with the players they've got to really ram home that advantage and either double their lead or, or push forward more or at the very least kind of control the game a lot better than they did. They kind of let it slip from their grasp after going ahead. But yeah, a good goal. Uh, questionable Arsenal defending, I think. I think Arsenal the, were really kind of buoyed by the fact that they were on top at that moment and maybe got a little bit carried away with with that attack. Some of the players were, were caught a bit too high up the pitch to allow Aguero in behind with that one ball over the top. But a good goal for City. But unfortunately, from their perspective and yours, Ellis, they weren't able to to hold on or build on it. Sadly, not. No, sadly, not. No, I mean, Arsenal scored. Nacho Monreal tucked in a lovely little cross and really... Momentum from that point on was Arsenal's, although the game did go to extra time. And then 11 minutes into the first period of extra time, the ball was at Alexis Sanchez's feet inside the penalty area. Great goal. He's quick, he's quick, he's alert, and he's clinical against Sanchez. And you can see that's why so many top European clubs want to sign him, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I think, just going back to the first goal quickly, the first Arsenal goal, I think... In many ways, this performance from Arsenal wasn't very typically Arsenal at all. They, they often get accused of lacking that mental resilience, the the toughness to dig in. And they obviously came from behind and turned this around in a big game against big opponents, um, which they've struggled to do in, in recent years. So I can't remember the exact stat, but it's been a long time since they did come from behind against a big side and, and win the game. The fact they played a back three for the second game in a row, that's something we've barely seen throughout Wenger's tenure. I think you have to go back to his very first season 
for the last time before the current campaign that he used a three-man back line. We saw that again. We saw a lot of kind of tactical fouling in the first half and Arsenal were, were perfectly happy to, to break up play leadly or illegally if they couldn't do it kind of with by fair means. So that, it was effective in a way. It's, it was a shame to see David Silva come off injured. Sergio Aguero also needed treatment at one point. So you can't condone that, of course, but it is an aspect of Arsenal's play that that aggression that, that they have been accused of lacking in recent months and in recent years under Wenger. So in many ways, this was almost kind of a response to all of those criticisms that have been aired. And the fact they were able to, to come from behind and get the victory will have been really pleasing to Arsene Wenger, who has had a very, very difficult season. And I think regardless of whether you support Arsenal or not, I think a lot of people have great respect for Wenger and, and really hope that he gets a dignified exit if he is to leave the club this season or in two years or whenever it is. I think he has contributed a lot to, to English football. So on a personal level for him, it, it was great to see him kind of come out on top and have that have that moment considering he's been through a lot this season and rightly has been criticised. But I think some of the some of the protests and stuff have, have gone a bit too far at times, some of the, the things directed at him. So it was nice to see him have that moment at Wembley and in a competition that he has a, an amazing record in. Indeed he does, indeed he does. Now, obviously, let's move on to talk a little bit about um, Pep Guardiola, who he's got a record of 21 trophies in seven years at Barcelona by Munich. He would have thought it was all going to go really well for him, but sadly in his first season at the star-studded pound signs after it, Manchester City, you know, City haven't performed, they've not won a trophy. I mean, Manuel Pellegrini, even when City looked doubtful that season he could at least point to the fact that he'd won the Capital One Cup finished fourth in the Premier League and reached the semi-finals of the Champions League but Guardiola this season hasn't won a trophy finishing fourth in the Premier League is in doubt and went out in the Champions League in the last, of six, in the last of 16 rounds so have City seen an improvement under Guardiola in this first season I don't really think so and I think Guardiola coming from my perspective as a City fan I think He's made, he's made some dodgy decisions at times, but you've just got to hope in the future will will pay off. But hopefully, hopefully he'll, he'll get a decent stab at it next season. But if it's any other manager other than the stardust of Pep Guardiola, Kaduna Mubrak would probably be showing him the door right now and there'd be some pressure on him, wouldn't you say? I'm not sure 100% agree with that. I think City, actually, with both Mancini and Pellegrini, they did give them... They did give them time at the start. They didn't kind of win stuff straight away, those two managers. They obviously got top four, which is important for Guardiola to get. But I think City have tried to show patience with their managers to some extent. And I don't think Guardiola would be under pressure this season in terms of losing his job if he was maybe a lesser name. Because I think Pellegrini at times went through similar patches where City weren't convincing at all. And, and they tended to stick with him until obviously Guardiola was available, who was their long-term target. But... I think, yeah, it definitely has been a little underwhelming this season. Obviously, no one really expected in his first season at the helm Guardiola to win kind of three, four trophies as he has done in previous years, mainly due to the level of competition in England now. We saw last season that I think it's difficult to compare just kind of lead positions between the two seasons. Obviously, City will will finish, four, finish fourth. Sorry, Last year, they got in the top four in the Champions League places, but... This season, if they finish fourth, I, I still think the competition this year 
means that it's harder to do that this season. So I wouldn't necessarily say that Pellegrini had a better last season than, than Guardiola's first one. But I would definitely agree that more was expected of Guardiola. I think there have been some some positive signs. And I think the one thing that Guardiola maybe hasn't done is shown a little bit more pragmatism at times. He's tried to play his way from the very start. Maybe if he'd have kind of gone back on that and built things more gradually, uh, City would have had more success this year. But there have been some great highs which which give you hope as a City fan, I'm sure, to to build on some of the performances the, against Man United away from home, against Barcelona at home in the Champions League, even against Tottenham at home in the Premier League where City didn't win. So it's easy to forget that game. But they absolutely dominated that match and played some amazing football against the second best team in the league. So there have been positive signs. I think the thing for Guardiola now is to is to try and get the recruitment right this summer. I know that's not his 100% responsibility, but City need to do that. And I think next season is the time to judge him and most of these managers a little bit more. But this season, I would definitely agree that it's been it's been quite underwhelming for Guardiola. I think a lot of people expected more from the start. And next season, it does put him under a little bit of pressure if he wasn't to win anything next year. I still think he's entitled to the free pass almost of one season, but... If he's still not able to move this team forward next season and, and next summer, we're thinking in the same situation, it's now two years without a trophy, then then that really would be a, a big concern for City. But I think at the moment, even though it has been a little bit disappointing and underwhelming, you've got to give a man with his record, with his track record of success, the benefit of the doubt and hope that he can he can kind of work his magic in the, in the summer months, both on the training field, in the transfer market. City needs to get it right as well, so season ahead next year for City and it's all about securing top four for them now because I think if they were to fall out of the Champions League places then that's another thing altogether and that really would be a disappointing season without a trophy and without Champions League football but if they can secure top four they've probably hit the minimum expectation required and next season they'll hope to be a lot more strong kind of going forward on on the both in the FA Cup but more importantly things like the Champions League and the Premier League because they need to contend for those trophies. I don't want my fellow City fans to crucify me, so I will add a couple of caveats to my God, Guardiola would be out if it wasn't for his stardust thing. I would say I think he's done really well developing the young players that have come into City, particularly John Stones, looks like a, a real professional central defender and has an absolute concentration occasionally, but I think he's a, a really class centre-back and certainly City have made a great signing for the future. And Rive Sane, you wouldn't guess he's only 19, 20. He's coming to the team. He, he looks like a, a £50 million player already. He's taking great chances. He's playing really well on that left wing. Hopefully in the future, um, the plan will be to move into a more central position. And obviously, Gabriel Jesus, who you forget, came in in January, played some really, really good games. Obviously, unfortunately, he's had the injury and he may be fingers crossed, back in the Manchester City team soon, hopefully. But you forget the impact he had when he first came into the team and how, you know, City looked invincible for the time when he came into the team. Sorry, yeah, let's just, go on, just go quickly on. add to kind of summarise um, what I was trying to, kind of the point I was making. I think it can basically be boiled down to the fact that there were problems with the squad that Guardiola inherited. I think it was very kind of lopsided. There were especially the fullbacks are the main issue where City just haven't upgraded that in recent years. They allowed him to inherit kind of players to uh, unfortunately pass their best and we're always going to struggle to play the way Guardiola wants to play. So I think City as a, as a club could have done more to prepare for his arrival. But at the same time, Guardiola as the coach, it's his responsibility to, in the short term, 
to get around that and find solutions to it. And at times we've seen that come off spectacularly well, but other times we haven't. So I think he obviously must take responsibility for it. I'm not, wasn't trying to absolve him of any kind of of blame for for this season and the fact that it's not gone as planned. But I still think next season, if they can get things things right, as we've seen glimpses of this year, I still think they'll be right up there contending for the major trophies. And to finish off, is it Wenger out or Wenger to stay? Now he's got Arsenal to the FA Cup final. Keeps changing, doesn't it? I, I still think he'll stay just because all the indications seem to be that he's not, he doesn't want to step aside yet. He wants to continue as manager there. So I still think he'll sign a two-year deal. But I don't think an FA Cup final is as good as it was for them to win. I'm not sure it, it kind of answers all of the fans' complaints that they, they have made this season. I think their league position, Arsenal's, shows that they've kind of taken step back, steps backwards over the last few years when this was meant to be the time where they were contending for the real big trophies. So... Fender's got a great record in the FA Cup. He could become the single most successful manager in the competition's history if he wins next month against Chelsea. But I, I think he'll stay. But I don't think this FA Cup semi-final win um, kind of is enough to placate the voices that that I think rightfully are, are, are pushing for for a change in the dugout. But yeah, ultimately, I, I still think he'll stay because it just seems to be that he's not ready to, to walk away yet. Thank you very much, Greg. It has been a pleasure talking to you and reviewing the FA Cup semi-finals from last weekend. Where can we find you and what are you up to at the moment? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Gregley Football. Um, small Premier League matches to come this week, of course. We had a few at the weekend, got overshadowed to some extent by the FA Cup, but but there's a couple of matches that I'll be going to at Stamford Bridge uh, tomorrow, Chelsea, Southampton and then Palace, Tottenham as well. So that's kind of what I'm up to this week. Um, and then... Obviously, the weekend brings more Premier League football, so looking forward to that as well. Your team, Palace, are on fire, hey? Two Benteke goals. I know, yeah. Tottenham are the, the latest scalp they'll be trying to take after victories over Liverpool, Arsenal and Chelsea, so probably be a step too far. But back to what we said earlier, it goes to show that it won't be easy for Tottenham to bounce back as quickly and as, as, com- as comfortably as they probably would like, because that's a tough game for them at Sellers Park, given the form Palace are in. Indeed, I'm Ellis Palmer. You've been listening to the WFI EPL Weekly Podcast. You can find this podcast and many others on the World Football Index SoundCloud or iTunes feed. This uh, podcast has been produced by Dave Cowan. I'm Ellis Palmer. You can find me at ellispalmer94 and follow the podcast on Twitter at WFI EPL Weekly. For now, goodbye. <laughs>